second. <clears throat> okay, yeah, so Psalm 110. And, um, you know, one of the things about the book of Psalms that we learn is that, you know, it's not just poetry. They're not just songs. We know that David was... The interesting thing about David is that he was priest, he was prophet, and he was king. Um, and he he's a type of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament... There was no individual that had all three of those offices. Um, either you were a priest, a prophet, or a king, but you were never all three. <clears throat> but but David, and the interesting thing is that priesthood had come from the Levitical law. And so the priests, who were the sons of Aaron, um, they were from the tribe of Levi. And the law had commanded that the priest would would were only those who were of the Levitical tribe. And as, of course, we know, Abraham is the forefather of, of the Levites. Um, now, David, he was after the tribe of Judah. And we know that Jesus had sprang from the tribe of Judah. And if you read Hebrews chapter 7, he goes at great length to explain how um, Jesus had ascended from the tribe of Judah <clears throat> and it talks about that the law establishes priesthood. And and Christ had come with a, not the law of Moses. The Bible says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so Christ had come with grace and had come with this new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, and so we read in the book of Psalms, right? Um, David speaking of Jesus, prophesying of Jesus, says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which in Hebrews 7 says is, uh, um, <clears throat> means uh, king of righteousness and, and king of peace. Um, but nonetheless, <clears throat> excuse me, the point I bring that up is um, David comes from the tribe of Judah, right? And J David serves as a type of priest, just like Jesus. Jesus was prophet, priest, and he was king. J David, coming from the tribe of Judah, right? He was priest, he was prophet, he was king. That's why David, you remember when the Pharisees had come to Jesus and say, why do your uh, <clears throat> disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath? And, and so that was forbidden by the law, right? And he said, did you not read of how David and his men had gone into the holy place and had taken the showbread on the Sabbath and ate it? His point was that, see, the grain, you made the showbread by the grain, okay? And so D Jesus's point is, Jesus was basically saying that his apostles were after the order of Melchizedek. They would be priests after the Melchizedek priesthood. And just as David, being a priest, was able to eat the showbread on the Sabbath, Jesus' disciples, taking the grain that is used to make the showbread, can partake of it on the Sabbath. Does that make sense? And this is why also David, he was able to sacrifice, being after the tribe of Judah, but Saul... 
being after the tribe of Benjamin, could not sacrifice. And he, if you read, Samuel had actually um, rebuked him because he was, he was doing what only the priest could do. Um, but nonetheless, that, that's, just, that, that's not what I want to talk about today. Um, but I just, it was what I was studying last night. I was studying Hebrews 7. And um, it talks about Jesus in, instituting a superior priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's never failing to be a high priest for us. He stands in the inner sanctuary in heaven. And he's our great mediator, right? And that's why our prayers can be answered is because we come through Christ. We come through his name. And the, the efficacy of his blood, the, the power of his blood gives us right standing with the Father. But the reason why I bring up David to say that he was priest, prophet, and king was that he was prophet. So when we read the Psalms, we have to understand that this literature is prophetic, that a lot of what he's a lot of what he's writing are prophecies concerning the future, and a lot of them actually concern Jesus Christ. The majority of his prophecies concern Jesus's um uh his his work and what he intends on doing and so when we come to psalm 110 <coughs> we see that it's a psalm written of jesus christ and it says in verse one it says the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet now we have to understand that right here in the in verse one the writer of hebrews actually quotes this verse he says, um, to which of the angels did he say at any time, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy, uh, your enemy is a footstool for your feet. And the purpose for why the writer of Hebrews, which some say is Paul, but I don't think it's Paul. The reason why I say I don't think it's Paul is because um, everywhere in every single letter, Paul has an introduction. Okay, He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, unto the church of Corinth, or unto the church at Philippi, or unto my son Timothy. And there is no salutation in the book of Hebrews. Furthermore, everywhere where Tim Timothy is referenced, Paul references him as my son Timothy. However, in the book of Hebrews in the 13th chapter, it says, to our brother Timothy. So I find that this is very unlike Paul to refer to Timothy as brother and not his son. And then secondly, there is no introduction as is customary in every single, every single one of his letters ever written. And so maybe we can make a case that Hebrews is an exception. Um, but nonetheless, I don't think it's really Paul's style. But that's neither here nor there. It's just for your information. Um, but in, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the superiority. In other words, the, the far gr there's a much uh, better greatness to Christ's work and, and his ministry as opposed to Moses. Right and 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 Jesus is made much greater than the angels, and the purpose for why the writer of Hebrews is communicating that is to demonstrate that he's God, and that he's just not man, or he's just not an angel, because the Father never said to any of the angels, "Sit at my right hand." He never said to any of the angels, uh, as as David says here, "The Lord says to my Lord." Well, whose Lord was da who whose Lord was David's Lord? It was Jesus Christ. Right. And the Lord, namely the father, said unto David's Lord, namely Jesus, sit at my right hand. 
until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, does that make sense? Yes? And so, so the, the, this, this proves that the Father and the Son are distinct. And yet, there's, no, there's not three gods. I'm not here to explain the mystery. I don't think we can. I, I just settle with the fact that it's mysterious, and I leave it at that. I believe that, you know, obviously Jesus wasn't the Father. Otherwise, who is the Father saying to the Father, sit at my right hand? That doesn't make sense. How could the Father be? And why does Jesus say of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will testify of all things concerning me. So there is a reality in which if, if the Holy Spirit was Jesus, then why would he say when he comes? Because if he, the Holy Spirit, was Jesus, then he wouldn't come. He was already there. Do you get what I'm saying? And so there, it's all God. Now, how do you explain the mystery? I don't know. And people go into debates about that. I, I just, you know, I like what C.S. Lewis said. He says, if God was small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. And and I, I just, that's my explanation for people who want to debate about that. Um, <clears throat> but verse 2 says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, here's the interesting thing, because people talk about Jesus reigning, right? And 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 I'm not going to get into all the complexities of it, but they, they normally appeal to this verse as if to say that, you know, when Jesus reigns or, you know, or, you know, during the millennial reign or things like that, that there won't be any enemies anymore. Whereas right here in this verse, it's making it clear to us that when Jesus sat upon his throne, that there will be enemies present. Otherwise, it wouldn't say rule in the midst of your enemies. So Jesus is currently ruling in the midst of his enemies, right? We know that he already sat down on his throne. And the book of Colossians says that you are seated with him in heavenly places. Right? Not that you will sit with him. Oh, go ahead, brother. Have you heard about, um, you know, when he was speaking about us being in heaven and our enemies being in hell? Like, that represents our enemies being our footstool? Us reigning over there? <clears throat> no, I, I, I don't believe that's what it's referring to. Um, okay. I, I, what I believe, and I'll get to it, but what I believe it was referring to you got to understand that this psalm was actually quoted by Peter. This psalm is actually quoted by a number of people. It's quoted by uh, Paul, if I'm not mistaken. It's quoted by the writer of Hebrews. And it's quoted by um, Peter. Um, it's quoted actually very often in the early church. Because you have to understand one of the hopes and the expectations of the Jews was that Jesus, that the Messiah would come and establish a kingdom. <clears throat> and this was very appealing to them, especially considering the fact that this was during the days of Rome in which pagans were ruling over them. And so, you know, this was of great attraction to them, of course, especially during that time, because they didn't have what they considered to be their holy land. And instead, the uh, Romans, which were very much pagan were ruling over them how 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 um, thankful would you feel if these foreign people were ruling over you and had taken your land and yet you're reading in the bible that you will prosper in the land and god will give you the land and 
it, it's not adding up. And one thing, you know, you see the scriptures promising something, and yet here's a very powerful kingdom that's dominating you. And yeah, that there was a number of, there was freedom to some extent, but for the most part, you had to listen to the Romans and they taxed you. Why do you think Jesus kept addressing to the Jews at that time saying, if your enemy tells you to carry his gear a mile, referring to the Roman gear, because they had authority, hey, carry my stuff. He says, carry it two miles. He says, pay to Caesar who belongs to Caesar. They hated that message. They didn't want to pay to Caesar anything. So, you know, uh, the Messiah what was, um, you know, a, a great talk during that time. And they were expecting to see the Messiah. Now, what I believe now to rule in the midst of their enemies <coughs> and making their enemies a footstool for their feet meant a number of things. It, may, it meant also, if you read in Romans 16, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. What do you mean? I thought we will tread upon scorpions. I thought that was already a promise given to us in Luke chapter 9. That you shall tread upon scorpions. And, and the, Well, why does Paul push it back to a future reference? That the God of peace will soon. In other words, it is at hand. In a short period of time, he will crush Satan underneath your feet. Um, well, Satan is, is certainly included there. But you have to understand through whom Satan is operating through. Okay, Satan was operating through the religious rulers at that time. And for uh, God to place his enemies underneath their footstool meant that God was going to destroy the Jewish people. And and this is, this is well attested in um, history. Um, I have a book here that uh, I'm, I'm not going to grab. Um, you know what? I'll grab it. Just I have a book here. It's the book of Josephus, the Antiquity of the Jews. It's an extensive historical book written in the first century by a Jewish historian that was employed by the Roman Empire. He begins all the way from the book of Genesis, and he he, re, he writes from a historical perspective the entire Old Testament up until his present time recounting, retelling of the Jewish revolt against the Romans. It's, it's, it's well attested by history. It's not a fable. You can do your research on it. Many people made reference to this work, um, even in, in ancient times. And he tells of the ancient Jewish revolt, how uh, the Jewish people um, revolted against the Romans. They rebelled against the Romans. And the Romans killed one million Jews and destroyed their temple. And so when Jesus began to weep over Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, 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 you who slay the prophets and kill those who are sent to you. He says, if only you knew this day what would make for your peace, but now it is hidden from your sight and your armies will surround you and destroy you. So, what does that mean? Does he meant? Did he mean me and you in America? Did he mean you in Hungary? Did he mean you guys? No, he meant his own people who rejected him as King and Messiah, who ha could have delivered them, but they refused his deliverance. And so, when you see the word soterias, which is the word salvation in the New Testament, 
It's not only speaking with regards to salvation from God's wrath from hell. There are many instances where in the context where the word salvation is used, it's referring to salvation from enemies. So when Jesus came and preached salvation to the Jews, he not, he not only preached it as a message from the, the salvation from God's wrath, but also salvation from their enemies. And so the Christians believed it, the Jews didn't. And as I've said already in this book, it retells of how the Christians fled from Judah to the mountains, just as Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24. So when the Christians began to hear of wars and rumors of war, see, because wars and rumors of wars have always been going on in the first, even before the time of Jesus. What made his warning to them unique at that time was this. Look, I'm in America. I've never experienced war. I've heard of wars and rumors of war all across the world. Uh, through internet, I didn't live in the 1940s when they, when we, you know, well, the closest thing I've ever experienced was 9-11. I still remember that as a boy where the Twin Towers were bombed by these radical Islamists um, and you know, the conspiracy theories, I, I, I'm sure people say, you know, it was plotted by American government, but who cares? All I know is I experienced that. Whoever did that, I experienced that, okay? Obviously, that was in New York. I'm in California, very huge distance apart. <coughs> but my point in saying that is I haven't experienced war. So what relevance did Jesus's warning to them have to them? And it was because... There was, for the most part, peace. They got along with the Romans. Romans got along with them. And, but, but eventually, the Jews said, we don't like this stuff anymore. We want to revolt against these guys. And so, the disciples, the Christians at that time, were hearing rumors of war. Oh, they're going to they're gonna, uh, revolt against the Romans. And, oh, the Romans are going to come and get... So that's how they knew that the signs were, were near and that they had to flee. And that's exactly what happened. That's why Jesus says, said to them, pray that your flight not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Okay. Now, if it applied to us, that means I have to purchase a plane ticket, go to Judea, and then flee to the mountains from Judea. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. The only makes sense that if he was speaking to his first century context, to his first century audience. So now, <clears throat> when we come back to the enemies being placed underneath them as a footstool, see, that's the Christians had been delivered from that time. They were saved. And all one million, and he, again, Josephus records that one million Jews were slaughtered. One million, okay, and that their temple was destroyed. And if you read in Matthew 24, he, they began by asking Jesus and said, because they were marveling at the temple, and they said, hey, this is a great temple. They're marveling at it. And then Jesus says, hey, look, not one of these stones shall be left upon another. So that is what began the discussion there in Matthew 24. And then they said, when will these things take place? And that's when Jesus began to explain. And, and so we know in history that the temple was destroyed and all of Jerusalem 
was was uh burned in fire it, it so it, it was a terrible time for the jews now the point that i'm trying to make is this <coughs> um if you read in verse 2 it says the lord will extend your mighty scepter from zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies okay now i'm, I'm gonna just skip a little bit and then maybe we'll, we'll read some of the following verses but in verse 6 it says he will judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth he will drink from a brook along the way and so uh he will lift his head high so we have to understand that the people he intends on heaping up as the dead were the jewish people were the one million jews that god destroyed in the first century why because Jesus says the blood of righteous Abel all the way to Zechariah the prophet will be required at this generation. Do you all remember that verse? Um, babe, would, would you be able to Google that verse? Kind of maybe paraphrase uh, my statement. Um, Google it and then put it in the chat. Said so Jesus said that the, the blood of righteous Abel shall be required at this generation. And so what, what Jesus was saying, he was speaking to the Pharisees. And what did they say? Also when they crucified him, may his blood be on our heads. And not only his blood, but also the blood of the apostles whom they martyred. Right, so all that blood was required at the hands of that generation. Now, um, I, I want to real quickly. Um, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to, uh, um, see where I'm getting this from, I believe it's First uh, Thessalonians. Uh, or it might be Second Thessalonians. Okay, it's right here. Look, <clears throat> Luke eleven verse fifty one, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And so Jesus was saying, yeah, you know all that blood that was shed from these righteous prophets and these righteous men of God. This generation. Now, how long is a generation? Can you all tell me how long a generation is? 40 years. 40 years. Why? Because the generation in the wilderness was wandering 40 years. Right? So, that generation. So, now, how long is that? This is before Jesus' death. How? What age did Jesus die at? 33. <clears throat> 33. You know why we know he was 30? Well, a good reason that we know that he was 30 is because you could not become high priest until you were 30 years old. And so Jesus was baptized by John. See, Jesus, John had caused the... See, the interesting thing about Jesus' baptism, they think it's a model for New Testament baptism. He didn't get baptized after New Testament fashion because he wasn't baptized in his own name. He had the baptism of John. And it was to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, We know that the baptism of John was not the New Testament baptism. 
The reason why we know that is if we look in the book of Acts, we see that when I think Paul had gone, or it may have been Peter, it had gone to some disciples and he says, have you been baptized by the Holy Ghost? He says, we not, have not so much heard that there's been a Holy Ghost. He says, we've only been baptized with the baptism of John. And, or even I believe it was Apollos who was eloquent and mighty in the scriptures of Priscilla and Aquila had gone to him and he only knew of John's baptism. And so they had to show unto him the more perfect way. Right now, Jesus had gone through the waters just as Moses had gone through the waters. Now, that, that's that's a that's something that's a different uh, topic, but that's an interesting parallel. How Moses had gone through the waters, leading the people. Jesus also had gone through the waters. Now, um, but what we find in uh, <clears throat> Jesus was thirty years old. When he became high priest, now how long is it from 30 years to uh, uh, add 40 to 30? And what do you get? What's the math? What is it? 70. Do you know when the temple was destroyed? 70 AD. Mm. So there was a whole generation from the time of Jesus being installed as high priest to the destruction of the temple. And we know it was 70 AD because this book, again, gives the exact recording on the specific dating on the destruction of the temple. So that temp, Jesus gave a generation for them to repent. An entire generation. Just like he gave his people in the wilderness an entire generation to repent. <clears throat> exactly 40 years. And he tells us that that blood was that that blood would be responsible on the heads of that generation, and so Jesus vindicated his people. He had delivered his people and had executed wrath upon their persecutors. And so this is what it meant to make their enemies a footstool for their feet. Um, <clears throat> it says Second uh, Thessalonians one verse six: God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give you relief to those uh, who are troubled and to us as well. And it says, um, he says, verse 8, He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so God, so Paul didn't say just in hell that they will, he will avenge his adversaries. <coughs> He's speaking of that time. And now Paul wrote this letter in either the late 50s or the early 60s of AD. Okay, so after Jesus' death, now, or well, actually not after death, that's the uh, year of our Lord, excuse me. But nonetheless, Paul wrote this prior to 70 AD, and so he is encouraging them. Now, you have to understand too, that the, the church of Thessalonica was actually beginning to sell their property because they believed this was so at hand. Okay, they believed that all this stuff was so close to occurring. And uh, Paul, of course, instructs him and says, no, you know, continue to work and, you know, don't go that route and being idle. If you read First and Second Thessalonians, he's warning them against idleness because they believe that, you know, all of this stuff was going to be destroyed very soon. Now, nonetheless, when we go back to the book of Psalms, now I, I cite that passage because... Um, 
Paul is encouraging them that, yeah, you're being troubled by your adversaries right now, by the Jews. And we know it was the Jews because Paul makes reference to the Jews in the book of Thessalonians. So it was the Jews, it was the Pharisees that were troubling them. And he's encouraging them and says, yeah, God will avenge your adversaries. He will afflict them with justice. And so when we look in Psalm chapter 110, I can demonstrate to you all, but I, I think you believe me when I say this, uh, that Peter actually cites the same exact passage in the book of Acts. He cites the same exact passage in the book of Acts. And, and, and he also cites Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations conspire in vain? And they plot a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed. It says that he will have them in derision. He will terrify them in his anger. It says, You kings of the earth be warned. O you rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun lest you perish in the way. And Peter actually cites Psalm 2 in his prayer. And in his prayer said, Lord, consider their threatenings. Consider their, namely the Jews, their threatenings. And you know what? The Lord did exactly that when one million of them were destroyed, their temple were destroyed, and Jerusalem was destroyed. And it's been over 2,000 years, and there has not been a priesthood to try to uh, re to uh, reconstruct that, that old priesthood. Now, the interesting thing is if you read in the book of Ezekiel, there's actually a prophecy that that would remain desolate forever. That, that, that temple that God, had, I don't have time to go into, but in Ezekiel, the Bible actually prophesies that that temple remained desolate forever. And um, now as we continue, if we continue <coughs> reading, it says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troop will be willing on, the on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Do you know who those troops were in the day of battle? The troops were the church. And now, the, the day of battle, and again, Peter quotes this in the book of Acts. And and actually, in, in uh, I, I believe in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the day of battle is the day of Pentecost. Now, why? Because that was the day the church was born. That was the day that a new army was born. Um, but if we go to verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush the kings on the day of his wrath. Again, 70 AD was the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Now, someone at this point will say, well, it's the whole world that he intends on destroying. Now, I want, I want, to, I want to ask that you turn real quickly to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. I know as ridiculous as this sounds, but whenever you see the word world there, it's not always referring to the whole world. As ridiculous as that sounds, and I'm going to demonstrate to you that it's true from this passage. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2 verse 1. Let me know when you get there. Did you all find it? 
says this in those days Caesar Augustus is you know in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire world okay this was the first census that took place while Quirinius uh, was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register now, do you think he taxed the entire world, Africa, South America, Canada, North America, uh, you know, uh, China? Did he tax the whole world? But what did the Bible say he taxed? The whole world, right? What does what your say, sis? Yeah, it is saying that he was governing in Syria, so it's like the whole earth that belonged to them, not the whole world. Exactly. I would say. Yeah. And so it was the Roman world. And Rome had power over Jerusalem, had power over Judea. You know, so it was their world. And also, if you look in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, and um, he talks about the gospel going to the whole world. He see, He says it in past tense. He says, this gospel that has come to the whole world. We know it didn't really go to the whole world because there's places today that have not been reached. So is it a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction. It's that there, it, it meant something to them in their context. And it was, it was a specific um, kingdom, a certain spans of a kingdom that they were referring to. Now, when you go back to Psalm 110, and it says how, you know, um, it says crushing the rulers of the, of the earth, he's not talking about the entire world. This meant something to them in that context. And crushing the Pharisees who had power, crushing the, the uh, you know, all those who had authority at that time, now I want you to turn to um, y'all. Follow. I want to ask: Do you guys happen to have any questions at this point? Anything that wasn't clear or is not making sense at this point? No, I'm following up. Okay. Now, um, I want us to turn to. Now, here's another thing I wanted to point out. And I want you guys to bear with me. I want you guys to endure. Um, again, if you have any questions, feel free to ask. <clears throat> it says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Verse 2. Now, I, wa I, want us I want you to think about it. Where is Zion? What, what passage are we at right now? Uh, 100, Psalm 110, verse 2. Where would you guys say Zion is at? And, you know, I don't want you guys to feel discouraged at all from giving answers. I want you to feel encouraged to, you know, don't feel embarrassed if you get get it wrong. Or... <clears throat> I honestly don't have a clue right now. Because I have to read the whole passage to even understand, really. Okay, that's that's fair. What about, uh, do, you have, do you have any ideas, sister? Yes, was, um... Uh... I know 
know that it represents the Jews who are under still the bondage of the law. And this is what represents them. Wait, I don't know. Where, it is somewhere near to Jerusalem. <laughs> this is all right. to the Jews. Alright, well, alright, I appreciate both of you guys answering, okay, you know, just giving your input, and like I said, this is, this is where, you know, this is a Bible study, and um, this is where, you know, we learn, okay, so I, I don't want you guys to feel discouraged at all if you ever feel like you're getting something wrong, there, there's no shame in that, um, so if you turn to Galatians chapter 4, I want us to turn there, Galatians chapter 4, verse 24, Alright, so it reads this. <coughs> Tell me, no, excuse me. These things are to be taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. And he was referring to Hagar and Sarah. One covenant is Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. We know Moses had given the law from Mount Sinai. Okay. Um, and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. And listen to this. Again, let's read it very slowly. Verse 25. Now, Hagar stands for what? Mount Sinai. In Arabia. And what does it say? And corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. What? Mount Sinai, Paul is arguing, is actually Jerusalem. Now, to the Jews, where was Mount Zion? Jerusalem. But what is Paul calling it? Mount Sinai. It's bondage. It's the law. What does he say? Because she is in slavery with her children. You know why he's saying that Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem, was Mount Sinai is because they were religious Jews who kept preaching Moses and they did not believe the gospel. Therefore, they were in bondage. It says, but verse 26, but the Jerusalem that is above, where is it from? The Jerusalem that is where? Above. Where is that at? The heavens. Exactly is free, and she is our mother. Hence, being born again. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Unless you are born from above, you can't enter the kingdom. And it just so happens that mountains are figurative for kingdoms. So when Jesus is saying you're born from above and that you can enter the kingdom if you are, then to enter the kingdom is to rule from Mount Zion. Mountains represent kingdoms. You read this all throughout the book of Daniel. So now, it says this, verse 27. For it is written, be glad, barren woman. Who is the woman? It's not a natural woman. It is, uh, it is heaven. That's what Paul is referring to as a woman there. It says, she is our mother. Jerusalem, she is our mother. Okay? You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now it says this. Um, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Who is he talking about? The church. 
At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. So he's saying you are born by the power of the spirit from the heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that is above. She is our mother. But the people that reside in the present city, Jerusalem, which they would have referred to before Jesus as Mount Zion, Paul is saying that's Arabia, and that is actually Mount Sinai. That's not Mount Zion. That's Mount Sinai. Because from that Jerusalem comes the law, and that law only brings bondage to people. But he says she is the mother of us all, and we are free. We are born from Mount Zion. Because Mount Zion resided in Jerusalem, but Paul is saying that we are from a Jerusalem that is above. Now, if you want further proof of this, I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. <coughs> now, I just want to ask at this moment, does it appear at all as if I'm introducing um, thoughts that are unsupported by the text because the last thing i want us to to think is hey that's just foreign ideas that are being introduced or read into the text as far as i can discern i think you know we're looking at the verse supporting the verses by verses i, I think it's very clear that paul was separating the two saying mount you know jerusalem the natural jerusalem is actually mount sinai the jerusalem that is above is the mother of us all and that's mount zion now, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 24. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, verses 20 through, 22 through 24. Let me know when you guys have it. And it reads this. But you have come to Mount Zion. Where have they come? Zion. Okay. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. So where where did they come? Zion. And what did Paul call, well, I'll just say Paul for the sake of argument. What did it, Paul call that? Heaven. Yeah, and he it, he gives a number of uh, uh, descriptions for it. He says it's called Mount Zion. He says something else. Heavenly Jerusalem. Heavenly Jerusalem. He calls it something else. The city of the living God. Yes, and he calls it something else. Oh, my bad. <laughs> no, no, no. That no, you're right. He does say the city of the living mm -hmm. God. Yeah. So there, there's three so far that we've named, but he also mentions another thing too. Yeah, yeah, the mother of us all, and there's one other one that I'm looking for. Keep reading the following verse. After the joyful assembly of angels. The church of the firstborn. Ah, exactly. So oh, okay. who 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 comes from Mount Zion? The church. Do the Jews mm -hmm. do the Jews come from Mount Zion? No. No. You know why? Because remember when Jesus appeared to the woman at the well? And she says, we know when the Messiah comes. He will tell us of all things. And he says, you know, she speaks of the mountain. 
And she was referring to Mount Zion. So our, our, our ancestors, our fathers, they worship at this mountain. He says, woman, a time is coming when this location isn't going to matter. And I'm paraphrasing. He says this location isn't going to matter. For the Father seeks for true worshipers who worship Him by the Spirit and in truth. <clears throat> now, what does Paul say in Romans and Philippians? In fact, let us real quickly turn to Philippians. Because I want you guys to know that I'm not making this stuff up. Philippians chapter 2. I believe it is... Uh, Oh boy, where's this at? Philippians chapter 2. Where he says, uh, For we are the circumcision. I'm there, yeah, but it's small. Hold on, let me, let me see real quick. Uh, Let me Google this real quick. Oh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Let me know when you guys get there. I'm here. <clears throat> For it is we, the church, who are the circumcision, who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So remember Jesus said when referring to the mountain, the Father seeks for true worshipers who will worship Him or serve Him by the Spirit. Paul says we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit. So in other words, he's saying we are those true Jews, namely Christians. We are from Mount Zion. We are from Jerusalem. They are Hagar's children. We are Isaac's children. We are the offspring that God promised to Abraham, not the ethnic Jews. Now, the ethnic Jews are included right in if they have faith in Christ. If they don't, why do you think Jesus, when referring to the Pharisees who were ethnic Jews, he says, you are not sons of Abraham, you are sons of your father, the devil. Why did he tell the Pharisees? They were ethnically Jew. They could point their ancestry to Abraham. It was because Jesus' primary focus wasn't flesh, for the flesh profits nothing. But he says, uh, but his interest was all those who would have faith and trust in Christ through the Spirit. Does that make sense? Now, I, I, want us to, I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter... Well, now, here, here's, where, here's where I want to um, teach us something, too. This is all going to connect. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. <coughs> I'm going to try to condense this as, as soon as possible, but this is... Um, this takes a lot of unlearning and relearning. Let me know when you get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. I'm there. 
I have to find my uh, charger. Sorry, it's right. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, well, I'll just read it then. It says, For truly I tell you, in, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So I want us to read that again real closely. For I, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What do you think he's referring to there? What do you think he's, what he's trying to say? This is Jesus. <clears throat> he says, until heaven and earth disappear, not one, of, not single one of these strokes of a pen written in the law of Moses will disappear. Now I want to ask you this, this question. This is, and I want you to bear with me. Don't block out what I'm saying just yet. I want you to really, because a lot of people misunderstand this passage. Okay, so are we under the law of Moses? Okay, so now then... According to Jesus, he says, there's going to come a time when the law will disappear. But he says, it's when everything is accomplished. Now, was everything accomplished? No. <laughs> well, in Jesus, yes. <laughs> because he, like, fulfilled the law. Okay, yes. So so, because if he didn't fulfill the law, that would mean that we're still under the law of Moses, right? Yes. Right. So, but what did he say? Until heaven and earth disappear, not one of these strokes of a pen in this law will by any means disappear. So, either we're under the law of Moses, and heaven and earth is still here, or heaven and earth passed away, and we're not under the law of Moses. He said that I will create everything new, right? Yes. Jesus said that I will create heaven and earth new, like everything will be new. Uh-huh. So I guess you are trying to refer to that. <laughs> y yes, but, but here's the thing. Jesus is very clear here that until heaven and earth pass away, this law won't disappear. Y'all following? Now, I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. I'm, I, I, like I said, this is going to you know, be a, a real in-depth learning lesson. Yeah, because I, I personally don't get the point, though. Like, I'm not understanding where we're getting at. Okay, and now, now I'm building up to it. Because I can't just share it, and then you're going to be, where's that at in the Bible? I know where we are going. I already <laughs> <laughs> because I, I have I have to provide the building blocks so I can point verse by verse to show you I'm not crazy. This is all leading somewhere. You said turn where again, bro? Hebrews chapter eight, verse thirteen. Alright. <coughs> now would we agree that the law of Moses is a covenant? Yes. Okay. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Let me know when you're there. 
8.13. Yes. <clears throat> Remember he said, until heaven and earth passes away? That once it passes away, we can expect for the stroke of a pen to disappear, right? Once everything is accomplished. He says, once everything is accomplished, heaven and earth passes away, then these strokes of a pen will disappear. Right? If it doesn't pass away, then and there's not, all these things are not accomplished, a stroke of a pen will by no means disappear. Now look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. By calling this covenant new... He made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Okay, now, now you have to understand the force of what he's saying here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus says, when all things are accomplished, now I'm saying it in the reversal. Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not a stroke of a pen or jot or tittle will by any means pass away or disappear until all is accomplished. You get it? So it's like me saying, until I start working out, I won't get in shape. I can't expect to get in shape if I don't first work out. You all understand? So until I work out, I won't get in shape. Until heaven and earth pass away... Not one of these strokes of a pin will disappear. Y'all following? You can't play gymnastics with it as if, well, technically I could get in shape before I work out. It doesn't work that way. You get what I'm saying? So he says again, and what is obsolete referring to the old covenant? In other words, what does it mean that it's obsolete? It's not effective anymore. He says, and outdated will soon disappear so there's two things in view it's op, uh, it, it's uh annulment that is say, is to say it is ineffective this covenant is not in force anymore it's like a woman and a man who divorced it's ineffective but the second thing he is observing is it will also disappear what are the differences in one case he says it's now obsolete in the second case it will soon disappear Okay, what was he referring to? He was referring to the destruction of the temple and the destruction of that old priesthood in 70 AD when all of that was disappeared. It's been over 2,000 years and it has never reappeared. And now I just, I just, I just want to, I know this sounds like foreign, but I'm just supporting this text by text. Again, now, here, here's where I want you to turn to Isaiah. Right, let me just stop real quick. Are, are we following? Are there any questions so far? I'm still building up to, to a more larger point. Now, I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. Now, I want you to bear in mind everything we've read thus far. From Paul saying that Zion is uh, 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 our mother, right? That we've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the church of the firstborn. That we are born from above, we're born from Mount Zion, we're born from the heavenly Jerusalem. Sarah is our mother. 
present city Jerusalem is bondage. It corresponds to Hagar and Mount Sinai. Paul, if he was alive today, would say that the Mount Zion that's in Jerusalem is no Mount Zion indeed. It's all Mount Sinai. Because that's what exactly he said in Galatians 4. Now, the second point I want us to focus on is how Jesus says heaven and earth uh, will disappear. Now, excuse me, I, keep your thumb there in Isaiah chapter 66. Because there's one other verse that I have to show us before uh, we continue forward. It's Psalm 11 verse 4. But keep your thumb there also in Isaiah 66 because we'll return to it shortly. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4. No, excuse me, Psalm chapter 11 verse 4. I'm there. Okay, it says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Where is the Lord? In His holy temple. Okay. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. So where is He at? Now, I, I don't want us to go to the in route heaven. of, Well, God technically is omnipresent, so He's everywhere. There's a focus here that, that David wants us to be mindful of. And it's that God resides in his holy temple in a unique way that he doesn't reside in all of the earth. Now, <clears throat> again, Psalm uh, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. Now, you have to remember, uh, okay, that uh, the temple, now, what did David carry? What did he command the priests to carry? The Ark, right? The Ark of the Covenant. Now, do you know what was in the Ark of the Covenant? It was the Ten, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, some bread. And do you know what seed was seated above the Ark of the Covenant? It was the throne. And the Ark of the Covenant and the throne was in where? The holiest place. Do you know what was in the holiest place? Cherubim. On the left and on the right. And if you read ancient literature, you will come to learn that the holiest place had depictions of heaven. There were stars. There were cherubim. But you know what was in the... Uh, the courts that were further from the holiest of all lions and creatures that depicted earth and so what a temple is what the now you have to again verse 4 the Lord is in his holy temple where is he at his holy temple but he says the Lord is on his heavenly throne his throne was in the temple in the holiest place and the high priest had appeared in the holiest place now where does the Bible say Jesus entered in it says that he entered the holiest place in the inner sanctuary, in the heavenly place, and that that is the reality, but the old temple were shadows of that reality. Now, why is this important? Okay? The reason why this is important, now there's still a throne, because in the book of Hebrews it says to us, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. There is still a throne, but now we are 
coming to the throne in its reality. They had come to the throne in the holiest place, the high priest, once a year after its shadow. Now, so here's the important thing. The Jews understood the temple. The reason why I mentioned lions and the depictions of earth and the outer courts and the cherubim and the depictions of heaven in the most holiest place is that the temple was thought of as heaven and earth. This is what a Jew understood the temple to be. Now, you can even read ancient rabbinic literature, and there's other verses here in the, in the Old Testament, as well as, again, this book, Josephus, a first century Jew, referred to, as well as the other Jews at that time, the temple as heaven and earth. So now Jesus, <coughs> when he says heaven and earth will pass away, he wasn't referring to the actual earth and the actual heavens. Here's the reason why. Here's a, here's a philosophical reason why I always throw in there in addition to biblical reasons. What is heaven? If we understand heaven to be perfect, right? Because heaven is perfect. It makes no sense if, if what I mean by heaven is not how the ancient Jews referred to as heaven, namely the the, the temple and the holiest place but heaven as if God's actual habitation we know there's different heavens Paul says there's three heavens he went to the third heaven so there's, there's three heavens so we have to identify when the Bible refers to heaven which heaven is it referring to is it, we're clear about that now if heaven is perfect I'm talking about the third heaven and if Jesus was referring to the third heaven in Matthew 5, verse 18, what sense would it make for God to create something perfect to redo it? And, and furthermore, how exactly could you destroy space? Because heaven is a habit, inhabitant. Well, I don't want to get overly philosophical here. I think heaven is a dimension and not necessarily a location. I think third heaven is a dimension. That's how Paul could say in the body, out of the body. I don't know. I don't, I don't even know how to fix this all together. But I think it's more of a dimension. But if heaven is perfect, what sense would it make for God to create a perfect place to only then to reconstruct it? Okay. Now we know that the Bible says in Hebrews 7 that the law and all of that temple worship in the Old Covenant made nothing perfect. But we, he has introduced a new and better way built upon better promises. And so it was always understood that the temple wasn't going to last forever. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is exactly what Jesus thought of. And this is exactly what he prophesied about. Now, when you go to Isaiah chapter 66, and I think this is, this will be the, the nail, the last nail in the coffin, I think that really demonstrates to us that this is, and now after I share this passage, I want to state my ultimate point for all this building up. Okay, now if you go to Isaiah chapter 66, I want you guys to go there so you know that I'm not lying. Isaiah 66, verse 1. 
Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, right? This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. Where did the Bible say uh, in Psalm 11, verse 4, where the Lord is at? He's in his throne. And it says he was, it says he was in his holy temple, right? In Psalm 11, verse 4. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple, seated on his heavenly throne. So we know that whenever heaven is referred to, it's referring to the temple. Because his throne is in the temple. Is that understood? You following, uh, Natalia? His throne yeah. is in the temple. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Psalm 110. I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Where does the Lord Jesus rule from? Mount Zion. Where is Mount Zion? The church. The church of the firstborn. The city of the living God. Jesus rules from Mount Zion. He rules from the midst of the church. That's how Jesus can rule in the midst of his enemies. And his enemies are a footstool and his footstool is on earth. Now, we keep reading. Where will my resting place be? See, God wants a resting place. He wants to dwell. Has, now, verse 2. Who made the temple? Who constructed the temple? David. Right? Now, who wanted to? David. You know why David couldn't? Was the exact reason the Bible gives? He had bloodshed on his hands. Yeah, it was because of the fornications. And it says he had bloodshed on his hand. It's actually what the, the, the reason for his inability to construct the temple. Now, what is the Lord saying in Isaiah 66? Has not my hands made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. So the first temple, man built it with their hands. The second temple, the Lord is going to build with his hands. Who is that temple? We are. And where was the temple at? In Mount Zion. Okay, so it's a spiritual thing that we as the church of the living God, we as the temple of the living God, have come to that city, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now look at, furthermore, it says, These are the ones I will look with favor. Hold on, let, let, let us skip past that. Um, okay, verse 7. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Do you know who this is referring to? Does it sound familiar? Galatians chapter 4? The motherland. And who, who was the motherland? Heavenly Jerusalem. Um, yeah. Okay. Jerusalem, yeah. Heaven. <laughs> exactly. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day? Day of Pentecost? A country? The city of the living God? Right? 
or a nation be brought forth in a moment? It's impossible naturally. Now look at now the reason why we know that it's the church is look at look at the following uh, clause. Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Galatians chapter four. Who is Mount Zion? The heavenly Jerusalem. She gives birth to her children. A nation is born in one day, the day of Pentecost. Amen. Now it says, verse 9, Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice greatly with her. All you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breast. Doesn't it say in First Peter or Second Peter it says, "Desire the sincere milk of the word." Okay, you will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord, what the Lord says: I will extend peace to her like a river, and the wealth of the nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm. And dandled on her knees, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and with chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all, the, all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. This is referring to 70 AD when he destroyed those people. Verse 17. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs. Now, hold on. I want us to turn to verse 18. Now, you have to pay close attention to this. This is the last verse that we're going to. Last passage. Verse 18. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all the nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. Now, okay, hold on. We're not done there. Excuse me. I, I, I do want, forgive me, I know I said this is the last passage. Um If it leave your thumb there, or if you can put a bookmark, put because we're going to return right there back to Isaiah sixty six. But if you look in the day Acts chapter two in the day of Pentecost, okay. Now what did it say in Isaiah sixty six? Isaiah sixty six verse eighteen. What did it say there? And I, because of what they have done, have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. Now, people typically think glory is some invisible thing. Okay? They think it's some invisible thing, all oh, the glory of God. But he says they will see my glory. Who will see it? The nations. He's not talking about Mount Zion. Because Mount Zion is a nation. He's saying the nations will come and they will see my glory. So look at Acts chapter 2 
And if you look at verse 5, it says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Okay? When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language. Didn't he say he'll gather all the nations with different languages? This is exactly where all... Now the day of Pentecost, you have to understand that the many nations would come to Jerusalem. So the day, the, it was, it was it's something they all planned for. So God uh, purposed that on the day of Pentecost, all the nations would come of different tribes and languages. The crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes. I'm not going to read all these different places. Um, but it says, We hear them declaring wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of uh, them and said they have too, had too much wine. <coughs> now it says, verse 14. I want you to follow the logic. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. So this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now he talks about in the last days who pour out his spirit, right? Um, now, now, I'm not going to read all that just for the sake of time. But we know he says, your young men shall dream dreams and shall prophesy, so on and so forth. Right? So skip down to verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through them. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate and for, uh, deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now notice, he's, gonna about, he's about to cite David. Now, remember in the beginning, I read David from Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. What did David say? I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, in the Psalms, Peter is quoting David. Okay, Peter replaces the word glory because David says my glory rejoices he replaces glory with the word tongue here and it's in the context of tongues so when you go to Isaiah 66 and it says they shall see my glory it's used interchangeably glory is used interchangeably with the word tongues so when the nations had come and seen their languages they heard and seen their languages being spoken in their own tongue this is that which David spoke about. My tongue rejoiced. My glory rejoiced. It's speaking about tongues here. Now, um, y'all following so far? Again, so <coughs> Isaiah chapter 66, again, don't turn there, but I'll read it. Verse 18, And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations. Can we agree that the gathering was the day of Pentecost? He gathered all nations and languages. All those people in the book of Acts, they all spoke different languages. 
Okay, and it says, they will come and see my glory. My question is, how can you see God's glory? Obviously, maybe if he allowed you to see him firsthand. Now, when you read the book of John, when you read the book of John, and he performed a miracle, you know what the writer the writer says? You know what John says? And they seen Jesus' glory. So he's equating miracles, signs, and wonders with the glory of God. That's the only way you can see glory. Now, when you go to Acts chapter 2, and Peter is saying, this is what David spoke about. And what did David say? The Lord said at my right hand. What is the significance of that? Because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit didn't come until Jesus sat at the right hand. So after Jesus sat at the right hand, they waited. He says, my tongue, my, my tongue rejoiced. Those tongues are rejoicing when we're speaking in tongues. Now, Peter uses that verse, which he draws from the Psalms. But the word that David uses is my glory rejoiced. So from Peter's vantage point, he understands the glory to be tongues and tongues to be glory. So when you travel, when you go back to Isaiah 66, they seen the glory of God. All the nations of all languages had come to see the Lord's glory through the manifestations of their tongues when the wondrous works of God were being expressed through the miraculous gifts of tongues. Y'all following so far? Now, Here's, a, here's where, now return back to Isaiah 66. It don't stop there. <clears throat> Verse 19. And let me just drive this further at home to demonstrate to y'all that this is tongues that it's talking about. Verse 19. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations. Now, <laughs> this is so amazing, man. This is so beautiful how God hundreds of years later could prophesy by the mouth of Isaiah to speak of the day of Pentecost. Now, Tarshish, the Libyans, the Lydians, famous uh, uh, as archers, to Tubal, to Greece, and to the distant islands. You see all those nations there in, in uh, Isaiah uh, 66 verse 19? Those are the nations mentioned in Acts chapter 2. And who is he? So he's showing them a sign. Now I want you to see this. Turn to First Corinthians. Keep your thumb there in Isaiah, and turn to First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse twenty-two. Keep your thumb there in Isaiah, because it's almost that passage is almost through. <coughs> but I need you guys to see that this is exactly what it's referring to. First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse twenty-two. Let me know when you guys get there. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So what did it say in Isaiah chapter 66? I will set a sign among them. Who did he set a sign among? The nations. And what, what is this in the context of? Them seeing his glory, which we read in Acts chapter 2, was tongues. 
So the sign he said among the nations was the sign of tongues. It wasn't for the believers, but for the unbelievers who had assembled there. Y'all following? Now, I got you. if we keep reading verse 22, and we're coming to a close now. And they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. Now, here's an interesting thing. We have to take note of this. Because while it did in fact occur in Jerusalem, we have, in, in two senses, if we take the natural Jerusalem to be Jerusalem, okay, then in some technical sense, in natural sense, it did take place at that location. But you have to understand that the church is referred to that city. And so the church was born, a nation was born in a day because a woman, namely heavenly Jerusalem, gave birth to the church. And so the, the sign came from the church to the unbelievers. Okay. On horses and chariots and wagons, on mules and camels. Now here's an interesting thing too you got to understand. Is that a lot of people did use camels and mules to gather to the day of Pentecost. Because they were traveling long distance. Okay. Says the Lord, they will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord and ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. Now check this out. Verse 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So, <laughs> now... The old heavens and the old earth passed away. The old temple, it disappeared. Remember, keep all of this in context. Isaiah 66 in the beginning says, Who will make for me my dwelling place? We know he's talking about a temple. He says, I will make it. Then he begins to go into nations, that a nation that would be born in one day. And we know he's talking about the church being born in the day of Pentecost because he talks about the glory of the Lord being seen through tongues and the sign being among unbelievers and the nations gathering of all different tribes and, and languages. And he talks about verse 22, new heavens and new earth declare, uh, that will endure before him. If heavens and earth to the first century mind of a Jew was referred to as the temple, that passed away in 70 AD. God created a new temple, which is defined as the new heavens and the new earth. You have to connect verse 22 with verse 1. The temple that the Lord's going to make with his own hands, and verse 22, the new heavens and the new earth. So now we go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, and he says this, Until heaven and earth pass away, Referring to the old temple, not one stroke of this pen will by any means pass away from the law. It won't disappear until all is accomplished. See, when Jesus died, not all was accomplished. All was accomplished when he died, rose again, ascended on high, poured out his spirit, and destroyed his enemies. He placed them underneath his feet when he destroyed his enemies in 70 A.D., that temple passed away, 
And all of that he prophesied was consummated in the victory of the saints who were delivered from the wrath to come. Now, interestingly, when you read in Acts chapter 2, who does he quote? David from the Psalms. What were we reading in Psalm 110? David, he says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. For in the day of your battle, your troops would be willing. From Mount Zion, you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Where is Mount Zion? The church. Jesus Christ ruled through the church, subjected the enemies underneath the feet of the church in 70 AD. That's why you read in uh, Romans chapter 16, Paul tells the church, God will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Now, <coughs> I know that's a mouthful. <coughs> and although there's, there's probably a lot of questions that can be asked in response to this. But here's my main point in bringing all of this up. Is that... God intends for us to continue to rule in the midst of our enemies today. God hasn't changed. All that has changed is the old law to the new law, the old priesthood to the new priesthood, Melchizedek. Jesus is our high priest, not the sons of Levi, or the sons of Aaron and Levites. Oh, go ahead, brother. <clears throat> 